podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This is part of the Anfield Raps Christmas Hamper. What is the Anfield Raps Christmas Hamper, you ask yourself? Well, the Anfield Raps Christmas Hamper is us handing over to you all the shows that we normally put behind the paywall for this week leading up into Christmas so you can get a flavour of what's going on there. That's what we're about with this little thing. We want you to get to listen to all of this, get a flavour of what we're doing, and maybe you'll think about subscribing. You'll be able to click subscribe whenever you want to throughout these shows. Go from there, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. But more than anything else, we very much hope you enjoy the shows. Thanks for listening all year the Anfield rap this is our rivals show this time on Everton we've been doing this right the way through the season before certain games against big sides sides that resonate in the Liverpool memory uh, Leeds was one and Manchester United was one but this Everton and we're really pleased to do it we were going to originally do a show that just focused on a couple of years uh, in during the 1980s but it became pretty much the whole stretch of the 80s because everyone was having so much fun I just wanted the conversation to continue and everyone who was having so much fun Mike Nevin Dave Prentice and Rob Gutman talking about Liverpool's relationship with Everton during the 1980s with specific focus on what Howard Kendall was doing. We wanted to focus on all that sort of stuff, pull that back to the present and remind you of how this rivalry used to function in the 1980s when both sides were competing for trophies week in, week out. I'll hand you over to them now. It was a pleasure to record. And it's, it starts off as a story of... A level of continuity at both clubs. Uh, in Everton's case, it was bad continuity in 1981. Um, it had been, at that point, I think 11 years without a trophy, David Prentice. Uh, I've got Mike Nevin and Rob Gutman here as well. And Liverpool's story was one of almost continued success under Bob Paisley. Go on, feel free to... I'm, I'm, I'm not needling you, Dave. <laughs> Do you want to celebrate that fact? <laughs> You've just flattened me completely by talking about my miserable childhood. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, my first derby was actually in 1975, which, like, every single derby match back then was a goalless draw. Uh, my first Anfield derby was the, uh, the David Fairclough one, which he constantly reminds me about on an annual basis with a text. I left in tears. He scored the winning goal when he came off the bench. So I'd gone through an entire childhood not having seen, A, Everton beat Liverpool, or, you know, Everton even looking remotely like uh, winning a trophy. And, you know, when you're a little kid, that scars you. It does, you know, you go into school on a daily basis, you know, getting absolutely slaughtered and not seeing any end in sight. And I'm being perfectly honest here, there was no end in sight uh, for the first couple of years of Howard's reign as well. Uh, Gordon Lee, I think he's unfairly portrayed as an Everton manager because he came close-ish a couple of times that team that finished third in 77-78 that scored 76 league goals was great to watch. Uh, unfortunately, Nottingham Forest were a very, very good team back then and Liverpool were an exceptional team. Uh, so, you know, couldn't quite, you know, make that final step then. Uh, had two really bad seasons. Howard came in, started experimenting for a couple of seasons. Everyone remembers his magnificent first seven signings. The only one of which who was magnificent was Neville Southall. Uh, the rest were all very mediocre to say the least. But he learned very, very quickly and uh, he learned in derby matches as well, because, you know, if you think about that, that 5 niller uh, you know, in 82, which was such a traumatic experience for, you know, every Evertonian you know, who witnessed it. But he learned the lessons from it very, very quickly. I mean, Neville was packed away on loan uh, to Port Vale, where he came back a completely different character, as well as a different goalkeeper. Uh, Glenn Keeley never played for the club again. Um, he made other tweaks, other changes and uh, put his own imprint on the team very, very quickly. And you soon started seeing Everson from getting absolutely steamrolled in derby matches, because there was a three another Anfield as well, uh, you know, in that era, which was, you know, fairly grim to watch. But Everson very quickly became competitive in derbies. And if you think of how good that Liverpool team was, just to get Everson being competitive in derbies was an achievement. This is... This is one of the things, Mike, you, you know, you're talking about you've all, th- all three of you grew up around this sort of time. And, you know, you yourself there, you grow used to. Young Mike Nevin watches Liverpool win derbies. It's what mm. they do. The, sees Liverpool be the best team in Liverpool. It's what they were in that period. It's about to change as we, the years we're going to talk through here. But that was, it was just the established order of things. That, and that was, you know, it was, it, it was undeniable. Yeah, um, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the, one, the derby that really sort of sticks out in, in my mind just to maybe mirror some of Dave's pain there, is the, is the famous Sandy Gray one where he scores and Evertonian celebrates it, quite rightly, you know, sort of with gusto. Because oh, Andy of, King in 78. Uh, sorry, Andy, yeah. Andy, 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 say, Andy, yeah. Andy King That's rather than Andy Gray. That's my first 78, yeah. yeah. And, it, you know, it's a fantastic goal. It's a 30-yard yeah. volley. It's into the top corner. Clements can't get near it. 
And I think it's that's the season that we're pretty much untouchable, where we yeah. only concede 16 goals. So that was a that was a big thing. But we don't Ever- beat Everton that year, though, do we? We draw. No, that was a draw at Anfield. That's the right most one-sided derby I've ever seen as well at Anfield. The one-one. George Wood was inspired that yeah. day. Yeah, Everton got a draw. I don't know. And Everton, yeah. I think Everton got one of the four goals that we conceded yeah. at Anfield yeah. that season. That would that would be an Everton's uh, goal in that game, yeah. but. So yeah, I mean that's the one that sort of stands out because the rest, the the, the whole sort of sea of the rest of the story is is just um, filled with Liverpool wins or, or or as Dave correctly points out, quite a, quite a few stalemates and they, they, weren't, they often weren't great games and I think that's why the five nil in some in some senses was sort of fairly seismic because you didn't get results like that in derbies yeah. really. Yeah. Um, was it three nil before that? It was, wasn't it? A year or two. Three, before? The three nil was after that. The, the three nil was eighty three, eighty four. Oh yeah, yeah. I think Steve Nichols scores with a downward header to make it three three nil, but I don't remember much about it. That was one of the live games. Oh yes, it first was. live That's televised right. games. But, yeah. but yeah, and I think I suppose looking back. I, I certainly have no real hatred of Everton, and I, there's been times more recently where I think the the rivalry has intensified around different issues. Really, yeah. I think that's fair to say. It was obviously a big fixture because it was the derby, it was the local derby, there was yeah. the locality of it. Liverpool support in those days was predominantly drawn, you know, exclusively from from the, the you know the local area and Everton as well. Um, so it was, you know, it was the family feud, wasn't it? Um, You're right. So the hatred was Liverpool, man. You, and yeah. Uh, Everton was a rivalry, but it wasn't hatred. Absolutely, and I think things. certainly in the early part of the eighties, the the Liverpool United rivalry had intensified uh, around Ron Atkinson, really. Yeah. I think in in the main, and you know, you, you were obviously very much aware of Everton as a club because they were the local rivals, but it didn't really go any further than that for, for me. We're heading towards like the mid eighties Cup finals, which we cover at the t- tail end of this. Maybe not. Maybe we will. Um, Whereby you had Liverpool and Everton crowds singing Merseyside, Merseyside, yeah, which yeah. is nuts compared to today. Well, yeah. You know, there, there was that culture. If anything, the enmity was on the pitch. Yeah, Do you remember, yeah. I, I see the '81 derby where there's a, a ten-player scrap, McDermott, and yeah. who gets sent off for Gary Everton. Stanley. Was Jeff, yeah. Well, Jeff Naughty's career was ended in that game. Case, of course. The two-two draw was with the two sending-offs, and it was the two least likely characters on the pitch: Tony McDermott and Gary Stanley. Yeah. But it's funny actually because there were very, very few red cards in that era mm. yes they were massively more brutal than the ones that you yeah. see now which are laden with red cards yeah. I mean some of the tackling was ferocious mm. I mean Souness Ebrill uh, you know the dogs of war after that they were just mm. like fairly you know sort of wincing challenges going in but you know the players respected each other on the pitch and you didn't see any any stupidness off it I've got a little theory about this which if I don't, don't mind me indulging myself just you'll fill your boots in. Peter Robinson, I've chatted to about this, and you know it's him who first gave me the idea, uh, because the Everson Liverpool derby, there was rivalry, the fans, you know, I don't know, they, they got at each other, but there wasn't hatred, and they were almost like largely self-policing. Because if you think about mm. the cop on derby day, there's always loads of Evertonians on the cop. I mean, the day that uh, Gary Lineker scored in the two 0 I was on the cop and I felt sorry for Bruce Gobelar because it almost seemed like half the cop was singing you're a clown, you're a clown because there were that many Evertonians on it. <laughs> you go into the street end on Derby Day and the loads of reds. You look at the 3-2 game on YouTube and when Kenny scores that goal, exactly. half, the, half the Gladys exactly. streets up. You know, so they, they mixed and I think that when fans started getting stupid and like the odd punch was thrown, the sensible characters in there would self-police and they would mm. calm things down because yeah. you know, there are more reasonable people than there are idiots. But when grounds became all-seater, uh, you know, in 94, in the, in, the, in the wake of the Taylor Report, that automatically, you know, created a ghetto element, if you like, of away supporters. They then become isolated. They can't mm. spread around the ground. And I think Peter Robinson told me, he said that because the capacities had been reduced, they had to reduce the, the number of tickets they gave to Everson fans for the first derby. Everson, tit for tat, they reduced the number the Liverpool fans got. So you got a much smaller, more isolated section. And it became easier then for you know, the idiots to basically point fingers at them, to shout at them. And the hostility started to increase then. Nothing to do with Heysel, nothing to do with what happened you know, so in that European Cup final. It was all to do with you know, the polarising of that section of supporters. That's what I think anyway. And uh, you know, to come from a guy as respected as Peter Robinson, I've got, you know, a fair bit of uh, stock with that, that point of view. Yeah, I think so that's, I, that's, I stood that's on the Gladys Street, point. and I didn't, you know, I didn't fear for my life. Exactly. I, I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't sit on the Gladys Street now. No. And risk. I mean, I'd, in the nineties, I sat, I sat in the Upper Bullens and felt on edge and frightened. Yeah. In fact, I got yeah. gobbed on. I've, um, I've been to a load of derbies recently, sort of sitting in the Bullens Road um, with the Evertonians. Normally, I'd get one off my me, me, um, former brother-in-law, and he, he, he'd sort of sort me a ticket out because you, could, you know, you, I think you could get one spare with a season ticket. And I'd sat in there, and it, it's not particularly pleasant, if, mm. if truth be known. But then, 
for years through the sort of the early eighties, this period we're talking about, I'd, I'd go, I'd stand in the enclosure, but it was it was towards the park end. It was predominantly red, <laughs> no, so no. It, it felt like you were in an away end in there. Mm. But certainly, just the whole notion of going to a derby and and now sitting among Evertonians, I'm sure to you know to an extent it's the same for Evertonians if they go to, go into our main stand or the Kremlin, they're not exactly going to be well received Absolutely. because of this th- th- this I- isolation that, that Dave sort of refers to there. And that's a really, you know, it's an, an interesting point. I I think equally though, I mean, for me, the way that the rivalry changed in, in the 90s was that both clubs were going through relatively difficult times where they, they were both experiencing a fall from grace. Liverpool from this, you know, sort of a succession of titles and, and suddenly becoming quite poor under Sooners and for Everton, you know, sort of losing that, that magic that they had in the, the, you know, the mid to latter part of the 80s. And flirting with relegation. And, and two relegation. Time, yeah. yeah. More than <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. <laughs> practically yeah. practically getting married to it, yeah. yeah. But only to, uh, to not, not say I do on the yeah. day, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Um, back to this period then, which is, you know, the, the period that grabs your attention in this is, is that, is the way in which this thing begins to change. And it changes around... 1983 in yeah. terms of not in terms of the fact that these these matches are suddenly competitive but also that there's a competitive element, element to Everton Kendall's first seasons he, he comes eighth in his first season seventh in his second but just to sort of you know contextualise the side that's beginning to he's to, about to be sacked Neil at one point though yeah yeah oh, I was yeah. going to come on to that which was that you know the 80 to 83 is where, it, where, where the pressure's on but just on those two the you know the, the, the five nil derby where Rush scores four as per the song you know you, you, you look across the uh, you know you look at you look across the team that season the outfield players Keely Wright uh, McMahon Heath Johnson Sharp King Sheedy is in the first game and then it's already beginning to take shape Gary Stevens is in Kevin Ratcliffe's in um, Kevin Richardson's in Alan Irvin's in Steve McMahon retains his place Sharp, Heath and Sheedy again but even there Dave you can begin to see the process the, the process and the progress of the Kendall side oh, yeah definitely it's, it's coming together even even between those two games across one season yeah I mean there's a couple of games that, that you think you know sort of really stand out as being pivotal in that era uh, I mean two characters certainly were uh, Peter Reid and Andy Gray and the Peter Reid signed in 1982 and it wasn't getting a game. I mean, uh, his fitness wasn't great to begin with, uh, which is why Everton got him for £60,000. But even the players in the squad couldn't believe that he wasn't uh, being played regularly. And it was only in the start of the 82-83 season, or 83-84, he went to play Spurs very early on, um, that he began to be picked regularly. Andy Gray arrived in, I think it was January 83. And again, it was a gamble. He, 200 grand, a guy whose knees had long since gone. But it was because of his personality, as much as his ability, that Howard Kendall brought him in. And they were two just huge, big characters. And their personality seemed to be infectious amongst the squad. I mean, Graham Sharp learned so much from Andy Gray about how to bully defenders. I mean, Sharpie always had the potential, but never quite delivered it. And Andy Gray taught him so many cute little tricks. And as a result, Alan Hansen, I'm convinced, always had his hardest game against Graham Sharp. Hansen was a peerless defender, but Sharpie knew how to rile him and get under his skin. And he learned those lessons from Andy Gray. Peter Reid, again, you know, supreme competitor. When those two started to play regularly, that's when you started to see the team starting to believe in themselves. But it only really happened in derby matches because Liverpool were who you measured yourself against then. They were the best, you know, bar none. And there was a game at the end of the 83-84 season when Everton had gone to the Wembley in the Milk Cup final, as we mentioned, drew nil-nil. And it was a close game, could have gone either way, lost the replay, but, you know, thought they'd competed. Then played a Goodison derby match, 1-0 down, missed the penalty, and you think, oh, here we go again. And Alan Harper, you know, scored very, very late on, equalised. So Everton are starting to believe that they could compete. And for me, it changed dramatically uh, in the Charity Shield in 1984 when Everton had won the FA Cup. And you can never, ever underestimate what difference that can make to a squad of players winning a trophy, believing that you're good enough to win something. So Everton had that under the belts. Then went down to Wembley for the, in inverted commas, friendly. Normally it is a friendly match to the Charity Shield, but a derby match can't ever be a friendly. So Everson played this, you know, friendly match at Wembley and won. And I just think, okay, it was a scrappy goal. It was eventually an own goal off Bruce Grobbler. But I think the self-belief that gave the Everson players that they could, A, not just compete with Liverpool, but then beat them as well. It just began to course through the squad and you began to see a completely different team altogether from that moment on. I do remember that Everton side suddenly clicking and I think it was probably a third of the way or halfway through the 83-84 season we'd been laughing at Everton there'd been that Kendall and Carter out leaflets around the ground and uh, Adrian Heath scores that goal that keeps them in the League Cup and and at that point 
Okay, they win the cup that season. What's forgotten is how good Everton are in the league. Everton have to, I, I, my memory may be playing tricks with me, but it's boys not. will know. Everton have title form for about the last half of that season. Yeah. Um, I think they finished third or something like something like they, that. I think they finished. I think it's or top four. six, but they've come from nineteenth. Yeah, it's nineteenth exactly. when Kendall's under pressure and they surge up the table. Yeah, it's t- and they, they finished the season. and We're scratching our heads, going, "This something weird's going on here." From having been a, a bit of a joke, forget the part of the derby matches because you know. They, they can they can be what they can be, but Everton were never going to come near threatening or challenging us in that phase. It didn't feel like that. I mean, I was young, so I'd never known an Everton threat. And then suddenly, I went, what's this all about? Yeah. This feels weird. And I remember my uh, my my good friend Julio uh, uh, Neil knows and Mike knows um, saying to me, they could win the league next season. These, you know, they could win the league. And I went, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and I remember the first I, day. I never believed next, it was going to happen. First <laughs> day of the next season. You say you beat us in the charity shield, but the first day you play Tottenham at Goodison yeah. and you get beaten 4-1 at yeah. home and we all went, oh, thank Christ for that. And then lose and the then next game at West Brom. And then you win and won the league. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it, was, it was a different game, also a different league altogether. Then, I, I, it? it was actually, and I think there was there was more scope for teams to improve overnight radically. I mean, we've got this constant outlier that is Leicester. But, you know, if you look, if you're going back to the, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, however many years you want to go back, to see a, a team change almost overnight was was particularly unusual. And I suppose Forest was an, a, another one, but they had momentum from coming up uh, from the second division. But Everton, for me, just turned into this this force within the space of about six months. And yeah. I think what was interest, interesting about 83, 84 and the two cup runs to Wembley, which ultimately ends up winning the FA Cup, losing the League Cup final. That that period then, cup football was, was, I think, far more important in terms of the way that it, it sort of blended into the league yeah. thing. It wasn't yeah. sort of isolated away from league form the way that we, we, we view cup football Not today, which is why cup football has lost, it, certainly the FA Cup has, has lost its luster. But winning the FA Cup, you know, for Everton, obviously was massive. But that was just the culmination of that six months. And... The, the derby that Dave refers to there when Harper scores, the way the Evertonians react to that equaliser there, it was more than just relief that you got a draw. There was a sense that we've deserved this draw. Yeah. We've matched Liverpool, probably for the first time really yeah. in a key game. And then that obviously then uh, transmitted into the Charity Shield, which, is, uh, you know, again, not a friendly. You know, Wembley occasion, 100,000 people there, mainly from Liverpool. That was a big, big game. That, and I remember being absolutely gutted that we lost. Like, like as though it was a League Cup final, absolutely. I would say. On, on a par with that um, and yeah as I say practically overnight there was this thing and the, the weird thing about it was that it, it for, for a Liverpool fan during this period and having gone through that period where it was it was probably just too easy to beat Everton it was actually quite refreshing and I think it, for Liverpool it came at a good time because it was an additional fillip and I think during eight, certainly 84, 85 some, we, we'd gone off the boil a little bit and we weren't great in the league that season and I think Everson's resurgence actually pushed us on as a club. 100%. They definitely bounced off each other, even off the pitch. Because I remember um, I, I started at the Daily Post in 1987 and I used to hear, I wasn't covering the teams then, I was covering Tranmere Rovers. But I remember hearing the, um, the reports from the other guys who were going to press conferences and uh, Howard Candler was such a canny operator with the press. He would always tell the national media guys to go to Melwood first, speak to Kenny. He'd then, uh, you know, come to uh, to Belfield and say, right, what's he given you? What's he told you? So they'd tell him, right, we'll top that. I want Everton on the back pages tomorrow. And they, they were even that competitive off the pitch. After that Milk Cup final where they had that, you know, staged uh, Everton and Liverpool squad, you know, all sat next to each other. And they argued for months and months on to where it was going to be. And Howard used to say, well, you know, Kenny, you actually drive past here in your coach every day because they used to get the coach, you know, from Anfield to Melwood. And he goes, you know, you can stop off here on the way. And it took them months to actually, you know, finally relent. And I think, you know, Howard got his way on that. They did it at Belfield. Yeah. But it was, they actually did spur each other on, you know, what Liverpool were doing. Everton wanted a match, you know, so when Everton became competitive, Liverpool wanted a kick again to top Everton. Yeah. Great was, times. There was that sense as well when, when, when the two were at their best that that, be, that that the city being the best was a big thing. Yeah. But that was great. And it wasn't so, <laughs> it wasn't the problem. You know, you say to me, Jesus, Everton being that dominant would be like, a, new, a modern nightmare yeah. right, for a red but at that point it wasn't a nightmare because uh, we were good at the same time yeah. it, you know the city I, felt so I mighty I think that was why it was a healthy a rivalry because it was based on you know, this mutual football and respect that yeah. both, both sides were, were, were really really first. good it was based on come first and, but I, I think the other thing that, that 
you've you've got to draw into this is the sort of the political situation in the city at the time as well and the the whole all of those finals really throughout the 80s it was an expression i mean in in a really innocent way i think people went went down to wembley to be on their best behavior to sort of counter argue against the the narrative really in in the media that scousers were up to no good scallies work shy all of these things and as I say, in an innocent sense, there was there was that aspect. But equally, there was there was also a sort of chest out. We'll you know we'll fucking show you basically. You've articulated um, that beautifully because that is exactly what happened yeah. at the time. I was at the you know eighty four Milk Cup final with fans who are Reds, and it was it was you know we'll show the establishment you know so we'll show the national I mean, media. You know, We're not scallies. The, the, the way and you know and it went as far as the way we dressed. We dressed differently. I think we be we just had a certain our own culture and our own our own style. Um, and it was a shared thing, and, and you know, you, if, if, aside from the actual, I suppose the colours, the bobolats, and the, you know, the sort of the, the favours of the time, that was mirrored across the city as well. You know, there'd be red bobolats, blue bobolats, then the sunats came in, and the Evertonians would pick up on that, and we we were wearing them as well. So we were really the mirror image of each other, um, and that that has, sadly, for whatever reason, has changed. I think I think we we have different ideologies now, and. You know, I think that's that's really sad. But at the same time, it was it was I, I think it was it was instigated through the the shared hardship that many people felt. Uh, Do you remember in the, the atmosphere that what town was like then when we were when we were always in finals or winning things between us? Town was this red and blue thing all the time. It was great. Yeah. You drive along Park Park Road. I seem to spend my life driving up Smith Down, and you'd see at all times of the year Liverpool and Everton favours in windows and things. It was a big big deal. Yeah. Remy, I used to think, was it all just to do with the FA Cup final or something? No, it was bigger than that, wasn't it? It was all the time. The Church Street vendors. It was a constant parade <laughs> in the way that it isn't now. Mm, definitely. Is, there, is it important to remember, well, I'll go today first, really, the importance of Kendall and all this? Because I think that's the... That's what sort of gets lost. It's what gets lost when he goes on to leave. We'll come on to talk about 84, 85 in a second. But that it's very much a team in his image in that they could all play football. You've said before about the size of the characters, very, very big characters. He was very into that. Everyone working for each other. People having to get fit to play. People learning a trick or two. You know what I mean? It, it, they, they very much seem in this era like Liverpool are coming to the end of that established boot room thing. Dalglish is going to come in in 85. But there's... Kendall very much turns up and, and, and is Howard Kendall, if you know what I mean. That's, that's, oh, yeah. that, that's the key part of this. He was a supreme man-manager. And, and if you listen to the players now, they've got such absolutely intense you know, faith and, and love for him because, I don't know, he, he turned them into something that they hadn't been previously. You know, he instilled that self-belief into them. I remember when I was a, a weekly journalist uh, working for the Formby Times and uh, going around to interview his wife, uh, well, his first wife, Cynthia, and um, about you know, what it was like to be a football widow, you know, the old cliche. And uh, she was talking, it was around about the, the dodgy time you were talking about, 83, the Kendall and Carter out uh, time. And she said that, yeah, many times he'd go to Belfield and he would feel down, he would feel, you know, miserable. And he'd have to put on this steely exterior and, you know, pretend he was happy and chirpy and cheery and go in there. And he got the players believing in themselves just by his own force of personality. Unique individual. I mean, you can't spend, you know, any time in his company and not fail to love the fella. Uh, but he got results as well. You know, he produced a football team, like you say, in his image. That old school of science thing has been a burden for so many Everton managers down the years. But Howard used it as an inspiration, um, not in a, in a frothy way, because you know it was a very, very steely football team, and you know they could certainly look after themselves. Uh, but equally, you know, once they'd won those you know physical battles, they could then turn it on and play some really sweet football. And it was great to watch. And it was it was down to Howard. Uh, I was very fortunate enough to be part of the uh, the voting panel um, for the uh, the Millennium Giants in 2000 when they picked uh, a player from every decade of Everton's history and then had to pick a manager. And people are just trying to play devil's advocate rather than anything, saying, well, all right, because Howard was in the room with us. And we're saying, all right, well, Harry Catrick, you know, so you won two titles, you won an FA Cup, you know, you've got to make a case for him. And no one in the room had any appetite for it at all. He goes, well, it's pointless even discussing it. It's Howard, it's Howard. He is the greatest manager Everton have still ever had. And, you know ever likely to have the way things are looking. The, go on. Yeah, I, I'm just... The thing that I think that maybe we never t- had time to take stock of is, as you said, that the quality of the player that ended up being in that great side, we'd known about these lads and they weren't that good. Do you know what I mean? Or we hadn't heard of them. We didn't, you didn't see them being that good. Andy Gray was a lad who'd long been written off. Peter Reid had fannied around at Bolton, being injury prone. Sheedy, Sheedy would, uh, had moved from us, what, in 81, I think he moves. And yeah. I don't think he'd set the world alight early doors. 
Trevor, uh, Trevor Stephen and Gary Stephen, they, they were around for a couple of years. And then suddenly, I suppose it's not dissimilar to, to Clough, what Clough does at Forest, but because Everton's a bigger club, uh, Kendall doesn't really get the, as much credit, I think, as Clough gets. Because Clough's, Clough's first 11 that win the league, they're, utter, they're nobodies. You know, most of them, aren't they? One or two are veterans, but hell of a lot of people like Kenny Burns and whoever. I mean, who were these lads? And Tony Woodcock. I think Peter and Andy Gray had always had quality. I mean, Andy Gray was like one of the first million pound footballers. Sure. He was a yeah, yeah. Footballer they were just a pair of, of Crocs, basically, yeah, exactly. weren't they? That yeah. was the thing. But the, the quality, yeah. I don't think, was in, was in um, debate, under debate but at nobody all. Nobody feared the, 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 Andy Gray signing for Everton when that no, happened. No, and they were both, co- I mean, as Dave said before, they were cut price buys because of their in- injury record. And maybe sort of, I, don't, I was going to say, make a storage comparison, but it's probably even not even as no. acute as that because I mean Reed had, I think Reed had had two broken legs before yeah. he came to Everton which is obviously taken away any pace that he had, ever had I don't think he'd played for England though had he before no he definitely hadn't played for England um, I think he, he was well he was well thought of as a footballer and I think one of the things I wanted to sort of just interject on that Everton team of 84-85 is that it was the quality of the football was just was they were a great side to watch and yeah. it was it was it was 4-4-2 effectively but the amount of movement that there was and it was the perfect balance because you had the two grafters and tacklers and hard men in midfield and Bracewell was as hard as Reed, yeah. albeit in a less celebrated way but Stephen and Sheedy were, were real flair players um, and, you know, effectively wingers in a yeah. way. Stephen more so the winger and, and Sheedy the, the real cultured left-sided midfielder. Very much reminding of Ray Kennedy yeah. at his best at Liverpool. And then obviously you've got Sharp and Gray up front. I mean, it, it, was, it was a bloody, it, it was a brilliant team. Did, really great brilliant. to watch, but tactically, I read a great piece only very recently that uh, Simon Hart uh, produced in that, that Here We Go book where he interviewed Colin Harvey. And it's quite uh, topical now talking about you know, Jurgen Klopp and his, his gig and pressing. And uh, Colin Harvey apparently introduced that at Everton uh, from the reserves. Howard Kendall had been watching Everton's reserves play and found Colin you know, so pressing in this way. And he goes, how long have you been playing like this? He says, well, most of the season. We need to have a conversation. We need to try and talk about that in the first team. And to be fair to Colin, didn't take credit for it. He goes, Don Howe actually introduced it first. He says when he talked about players you know, trying to press high up the pitch, trying to, you know, sort of pinch possession. And he explains in, you know, fairly, you know, technical detail as to why that could work. And you watch the Everton team of that era, and they do, they, they went hunting in packs, you know, yeah. so similar to the way Liverpool do now, trying to win possession high up the pitch. But then when they did, I mean, Sheedy, the quality of that left foot, and the only reason he never got a look in at Liverpool is because Ronnie Whelan, you know, yeah, was an absolute class absolutely. act. Otherwise, he'd have been playing for Liverpool for many, many years. Yeah. Trevor Stephen on the other flank, everybody looked at. He was only a young kid when Everton bought him. Bob Paisley went a few Burnley, times to look at him. Burnley, Burnley yeah. 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 300 grand, which is a lot of money then for yeah. a, a lad of his age. And he took a while to settle down. You know, it was big expectations for that transfer fee. And, you know, his confidence suffered for a little bit. But again, the Andy Gray factor, the Peter Reid factor, instilling their confidence into those players, making them believe in themselves. Uh, I always remember, remember the famous goal on Match of the Day that, um, oh God, I'm not even sure who scored it now, but uh, for argument's sake, Adrian Heath, and uh, Andy Gray's come running at the camera, pointing at the guy who scored. And he always did that. He'd always be the first on the scene, pointing at them and making sure the due credit was given to the person that had scored the goal. And it was just, you know, mates looking after each other and making sure they were all bigged up and, you know, it had all rubbed off on each other. I, wonder, I mean, it would be interesting just looking back at that team and Gray and Reed in particular because their bodies seem to harden in this sort of, not um, middle age, but should we say, as they, they entered their, you know, the latter part of their career, all these injuries just seem to, to go away. I mean, Gray didn't seem to miss many games. Reed seemed to be pretty much an ever-present. So what, yeah. I just wonder sometimes the, the physicality of, of, of young men and, and, and as, they, as they just slightly near the end of their career, whether they get a solidity to their physique and makes them less susceptible to injury. It, it's not so much about pace and, you know, sort of sin, it's, it's more sort of the sinew. Um, and whether, you know, as I said, they're, they're just the body's hard Certainly enough to allow them to now. play. <laughs> <laughs> I, can I just talk about Everton, my memory of them tactically? Because it's... The, I remember the aggressive pressing unit. Yeah, definitely. I remember, I remember there times of Everton playing some wonderful football, but I also remember Everton being the first of that era of being very direct. Because Everton, because uh, we started getting, I remember starting getting bitchy about Everton when I talked <laughs> to my red friends at the time. We were very much, um, we would play our triangles all over the pitch. Our wanted, our full backs would get in behind 
bit like we're, we're trying to play now. They, you'd, so we didn't cross the ball. Liverpool didn't cross the ball. But Everton would get, it seemed to me to get a lot of the time to the full-backs or to Trevor, Stephen and Sheedy. And from about 30, 40 yards, they would hit diagonals into those, because those two were the, the, the best two players in the world in the air at that time. So, and in a way, and Everton, it was a really mixed up game, I think, and mixed up in a good yeah. way. And they could play it on the deck, they could play some nice stuff, but they were very, very direct and no messing and no compromising when they wanted to be. And in a way, I think it sort of gave ideas to lesser lights further down the table that, you know what, you can be more competitive this way. And I wonder if you'd have seen Watford and Wimbledon. Not that I'm saying that Everton team yeah. was like that, but I wonder if you'd have seen them without Howard Kendall's sort of more direct approach in the I mean, mid-80s. It, I mean, it was occasionally direct, but it was with real quality. Cause oh, like, yeah. Because Sharp, I mean, Sharp and, and Grey, their ability, I mean, not so, I mean, obviously both good in the air, strong in the air, Grey in particular, but they're brilliant with the back-to-goal. And, and bringing players yeah. into play. I mean, Sharp's typically you see Sharp well. take, it, take it down on, on his chest and then spread it out wide oh, against yeah. it to yeah. Stephen or Sheedy. So it was part of the build-up, but, you know, there's nothing wrong with a long ball. No, you know, no, no. no, 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 no. no. I think the second half of that, everyone talks about Sharp and Grey because they ended that season, but the first half of that season, Grey couldn't get a look in because uh, mm. it was Graham Heath, Sharp and Adrian Heath. Yeah. Adrian Heath, that was, some of the quality of that football was absolutely outstanding. And it was only when Heath's knee was rearranged in December by Brian Marwood that you know Andy Gray started to get played regularly, yeah. and the football did change, to, you know, subtly. Uh, they could play it long when necessary, and they did it against Bayern Munich. You know, mm. Howard Kendall yeah. said to them at half time, "Just put it in the box. Yeah. Goalkeeper doesn't fancy it." And you know, that's how it turned out. It's like Liverpool against but, Borussia ten exactly, years earlier. Yeah. yeah. But, but they could also mix it up and you know, so and play really, really sweet football. I always remember the uh, the four 0 victory over Newcastle United that season when Jackie Charlton was a Newcastle manager, mm. and he was asked afterwards, you know, so how do you feel? I'm delighted. Sorry, you're delighted. You've just been beaten 4 0. Mm. I don't care. That should have been 8 0. They're the best balanced team I've seen mm. in the, what the, it's called then, top division or first division. And it just made you so proud to actually hear that because they could, they could play that quality of football when necessary. They were balanced, weren't but they? But equally, could mix it up as well. The, the, yeah. the, the key part of this, from a Liverpool point of view, Mike, is the point at which you become scared of them. 84 85, Rob's mentioned there that people begin to talk behind the hand almost and say, these, you know, the, 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 as we get into the season, these could do something. And. You know, the end of the season, the end 84-85, league cup winners, cup winners. Uh, well, I've just said the same word over and over again. Uh, league winners, cup winners, cup winners. And uh, for the FA Cup finalists, and it must have been quite terrifying, really, from a Liverpool yeah. perspective. That it's, I mean, it's one thing to enjoy the knockabout of the rivalry and be battling away at the top end of stuff, but... Everton don't just win the league in 84, 85. They absolutely batter everybody. Yeah. They win it by, I think they've got it won in April. They, 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 oh, yeah, they, it, was, they, it was a procession, basically. Um, I mean, I, I remember, I mean, again, quite funny, really, because from, from being um, not particularly bothered by Everton because, you know, they weren't fighting sort of toe-to-toe with us for, for trophies, all of a sudden I hated them. I, I, and it, yeah. within six months, I remember saying to my sister every week, they just win every game they play. They just win every game they play. And I got it into me. They basically got into my head well and truly. And that 84, 85 season, I suppose we just had the consolation that we were still kicking around in the European Cup and we were on the verge of getting to another European Cup final and deal fated one, obviously. But yeah, you, you were, you were well, well aware of how good they were. And, and then that obviously goes into 85, 86 as well. And bar the, 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 the last minute collapse of Everton that season, there was just an inevitability. I thought, I thought at that time that that was going to be a second championship. Yeah. This was a dynasty that, that was being built. To be fair, that wasn't a collapse. That was just. They just lost one that, game. That was really. exactly one match yeah. at Oxford United yeah. when Gary Lineker left his boots behind. Much the same as Liverpool's 2014 it, it was, thing. Exactly. It was how good Liverpool were from. I think it was February, was it, with the 2 0 derby match at yeah. Anfield where Ratcliffe yeah. and Lineker scored. And everyone just presumed like that's it. You know, I think so Liverpool won twelve, yeah. Liverpool, thirteen after yeah, exactly. that. Yeah, and this ridiculously run. Everton well, Everton, Everton's run was almost as good. Yeah. I think there was a couple of draws thrown in there anyway. But yeah, but I mean, the, the point I'm trying to make is that the eighty four, eighty five thing. It, it felt awful. It felt right. I mean, it was it was refreshing in the sense that we had this new this new rival, um, but you know, rival for trophies and for for domination. But there was there was something really scary about it because it didn't look. It didn't look. There was no. There was no, no obvious reason for it to go away. Um, and Kendall was was canny. He was certainly getting under my skin by then because I, I from being quite an avuncular fella that you couldn't really have any any real loathing for. I I began to dislike him because I, because I could see how crafty crafty he was with the medium. He dropped the occasional bomb, yeah. and it was a little bit. You can just see that's 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 a, a you know a jibe at us. That's oh, get, yeah. meant to get us wound up, and it bloody that's worked. You know? I remember Everson won in the FA Cup down. Um, oh, I, forget, I forget where they were playing. And uh, Elton Wellsby was interviewing after the game. And he goes, who do you fancy in the next round? He goes, oh, I don't mind. Anybody at home? Brighton would be nice. 
Brighton were playing Liverpool the next day. And yeah, it's just little, little things like, like that. that yeah, that absolutely. Just, you know, sort of it, yeah. quite cute. It marks, I think, um, I remember at the time vividly thinking from having watched Liverpool win leagues and you never knew from one season to the next two who the main title threat was going to be. It was almost like a guest appearance. West Brom was second one year, Forest moved for a couple of years, United creep up and come second under Dave Sexton. But you knew they weren't ever real threats. And then suddenly by the mid, by, by 84 onwards, You've got Atkinson at United is beginning to get them together and they're spending big money. And you've got Everton. And I think Spurs are a lot better in that phase as well. They're starting to have... uh, Well, Hoddle's at the peak of his powers and and they're getting to... They get to the UEFA Cup final about 83, I think. And Arsenal are beginning to show more regularly. Is it early George Graham at that point? It might even be. But I remember there comes a point, it felt very like now, where you go, if there was a Champions League then, you go... Who's going to miss out? There was a big four what, in English football. What, what Liverpool, you, you, Everton, What you've just United. done there, Rob, is basically talk about the big five. Big five. That was what they were called. They were called the, the big five, the, the, yeah. the, the, sort of the, From nowhere What, what, what would happened. be notionally now a top four, or, or what I was being a top four during the Champions League is, that was the big five. And they were... The, I think the, the thing about the, the renewed threat of those clubs to us was the fact that with Watford, you knew it would go away because they're, they're a small football club. Forest were a relatively small club. So were Ipswich, who were, who were QPR a challenger. Had been there QPR, about. West. But all the clubs that you mentioned that have, have put in a challenge to Liverpool come second at various times. They didn't They didn't have the financial clout for it to sustain. The worry with, with Everton was that they were more or less on a par with us, I think, in terms of you know size of club at the time. Yeah. Financially, it was very much down to gate money as opposed to TV money. Everton's gates, once they uh, became competitive again, were, were up in and around the same mark as us. United obviously had that um, that wealth of support behind them as well. So there was, and th- that was, the, I suppose, the, the, mo- the, fa- the most fascinating thing about 85, 86, I know we're not really no, we'll go to that we'll point, go it, we'll is the fact that you've got, and Rob was right to, to mention Spurs, you know, Spurs, another big club suddenly mm. with a really good side. United, a massive club with good players. Everton, a big football club with a, with a superb winning team. And, and, and ourselves and, and Arsenal the first the first signs that Arsenal are becoming a threat again really for the first time since the early 70s yeah. so I just think and that's what made that season so exciting because you got all the big the big hitters basically in the league and all the teams that historically have, been, have won league championships in the past throughout the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and there they all are again competing at the top table it was fascinating really and that was that was how the big five Came well, about. And just, was, yeah. just to go back to 84, 85 before we move on, we'll go all the way to 88 uh, while we sit here now because I'm, I'm enjoying myself yeah. uh, and that's the main reason. Uh, but we'll, I, I want to sort of touch on two other, th- two other factors that 84, 85 sides. And again, I expect Mike to come in on this, but I'll go to you first, Dave. The two centre halves, Ratcliffe uh, yeah. and the pace of them. But then the second aspect of Ratcliffe is, sorry, of, the, of that centre half partnership is that Derek Manfield, if I, if I get my stats right on this in the 84 85 season, scored 103 goals in 42 games. And also Southall. Yeah. And that's the other thing that Southall's. So it, it, I think it's become very easy for people to forget exactly how good Neville Southall was, that he was the best goalkeeper in the country, 84, 85. He's all, almost certainly the best goalkeeper in the world. And that's something else that's sort of getting into Liverpoolian minds as well, is that, that, that these, these fellas, even when you do manage to turn them around and put them under some pressure going the other way, they've got Neville Southall. Yeah, it, it's, it's that old talk about balance again, because Ratcliffe had this supreme pace. Manfield just was a solid central defender, you know, not exceptional, but solid, but had this great knack of appearing in the opposition penalty area and scoring goals when it mattered most generally. But behind them all, Neville was, he's still the best goalkeeper I think I've ever seen. Uh, at his peak from 85 through to about 88, he was better than Schmeichel. Um, he just, he had this aura about him, he had this athleticism. Uh, so many times I'd see, you know, people bearing down on him. And you just knew it was going to be, you know, going to be saved there. The Bayern Munich semi-final when Ludwig Kogel went through. And I just knew Neville was going to stop it. And he did, but the ball ran away and Honus topped it, it tapped it in. But he did, he had this aura about him that, you know, for three or four years was just absolutely impregnable. Alex Ferguson tried to sign him a few times and it never happened, fortunately. Uh, but it was just absolutely wonderful. And, you know, people, again, lose sight of how good he was. Funnily enough, on Twitter today, someone put a link to the, uh, the Anfield derby of roundabout, was it 87 or 88, when Wayne Clark scored the penalty at Anfield, finished 1-1. And you forgot, you know, Neville made two or three absolutely stunning saves. I'm watching again, I'm just shaking my head. That one from John Barnes from about six yards that he tipped over the bar. And in true Neville tradition, just like got up and shrugged his shoulders and got on with it. It was, he was uh, a force of nature, but struggled for confidence very early in his Everton career, which is uh, difficult to believe. But once he'd found that, 
because obviously getting conceding five goals in a derby match at Goodison, you know, does anything to a young man. And Howard then very cannily sent him away on loan to Port Vale uh, for two or three months, and he just came back a changed character and was just sensational from that point on. Yeah, I'm going to sort of echo every word there. I mean, he, he was brilliant. I mean, the thing about him that I really recall was just how strong his reflexes were. And he made, re, the reflex save was, was his stock in trades, really. And the, the, the two two in particular, there was quite a famous one at Spurs, wasn't there? Which was, was it like a clinching game for Everton. Yeah. And it was, it was practically under the bar and he somehow gets a hand on that and tips it round. And there was one that was used on the opening titles of Match of the Day for a couple of seasons yeah. at Sheffield Wednesday where I think someone sort of, uh, there's like a flick header at the near post yeah. and it's going in the, the far post and somehow he reacts to that and gets a, a tip around. And, you know, there's just two examples and, you know, there were plenty in derbies certainly where, you know, he'd save Everton's bacon, but just generally speaking, but that, that I mean, the, the reflex save was, as I say, something that he, he was renowned for, but he was just a really solid presence as well. I mean, he, he, sure as he catching the ball, um, you know, he, I think he had a nice mix of being sort of good, good on his line, but was prepared to come out and, and claim balls. Not to the same extent that Gra- the Grobelar was, but he had that he had that greater reliability than Grobelar did, really. And I think it's quite interesting that a lot of the a lot of um, Grobelar's travails at the time, I think, were put into sharper focus by Southall because he was more of a conventional goalkeeper, yeah. if you like, and a better one. You know, if truth be known. Um, yeah, it goes goes back to that character thing again because uh, you talk about. Um, you know, getting into opposition forwards' heads, you know, psychology. And that was the days of the plastic pitches, Kenilworth Road and Loftus Road, both being not the 3G pitches you've got now, but literally concrete with a carpet laid over it. And Neville used to insist on wearing shorts. Every other goalkeeper would wear tracks yeah. and bottoms. And he'd wear shorts, and in the warm-up, he'd be throwing himself around, getting cut to ribbons, and the defenders would be you know, laughing, what are you doing, Nev? And he goes, oh, it's all right, you just wait till the match starts. And you could see opposition strikers thinking, this guy's a lunatic, you know, so what, what's going on here? But talking about Grobelar was quite interesting there, because I had this uh, conversation with Colin Harvey many times about Grobelar, because he was always perceived as being a, a little bit, you know, flaky. He'd throw one in, then he'd make two or three wonderful saves, and Colin loved him. Connor said he was a great goalkeeper. He goes, I'll happily put up with those kind of mistakes all day long because he will also make the kind of saves that will win you matches that no other goalkeepers would make. And he did that frequently. But I think Neville was just more consistency. He would never drop those... Well, obviously, every goalkeeper makes mistakes, but I'm hard-pressed to think of many from Neville, to be honest. They showed one on their footy focus the other day of him catching the ball down at Watford and stepping on his line and the referee ruled it had gone over the line. I remember that one, yeah. Was that yeah. a mistake? I don't know. But I can't really think of a misjudgment. Many yeah, you know, he, he just didn't make mistakes. Yeah, yeah he was. I mean, he, he, he was brilliant. And I think, you, you know, I agree about Grobelar. I mean, I rated Grobelar highly myself. I loved Grobelar um, because he was just an exciting goalkeeper to watch. Yeah, yeah. And he had a completely different style. But he definitely made more mistakes than Southall. There's no, there's yeah. no doubt about that. The, the, just going back to Ratcliffe as well. I mean, Ratcliffe was... Definitely, he was the more of the Rolls Royce defender yeah. compared to Mountfield. But Mountfield, I mean, there was lots of them in, the, in those days. I mean, you look at people like Kevin Moran, tough, hard fellas, basically playing centre half, no nonsense at all. I think uh, Mountfield certainly had a little bit of edge to him, should oh, yeah. we say? Yeah. And, a, and of course, that uncanny knack to score from um, sort of free kicks and corners. But that that wasn't so much, you know. So it was more well, the accident by des- rather than design. I think Everton won a lot of free kicks around the penalty area yeah. because they had those two wide players and going got, past people, and then Sheedy's quality. And they had they're, 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 obviously Sheedy's ability. Unplayable in the air, and, he'd be, he'd, and the quality. They that's could it. I mean, they were literally planting balls on on, on Mountfield's head. It, it wasn't an accident, and, and, and he's terrifying when Everton put put the ball in because oh. there's so so many options. Yeah, there. everyone could everyone could hit the ball. Ratcliffe though was, was the almost the only defender I think in the British game at that time you could say you'd hold a candle to, to Lawrenson and Hansen as a footballing centre-half someone who had pace and could, and could you know everybody everybody else was a stopper really and probably doing one or two on, on maybe Gary Mabbott was had a little bit more about him but yeah Rack, I would say Ratcliffe and those two at Liverpool were were, up, were peerless in Europe almost at that time that, that style whatever you say about Grobler uh, I uh Mike, I, for me, in that period of three or four years, Grobelar's my favourite keeper ever. Just, to, I, I'd agree with what Colin Harvey said. Is for whatever he did wrong as a team goalkeeper, 
in terms of, we talked about this in a podcast earlier today about whether Carrius, despite being maybe equally as bad as me, like, <laughs> actually does slightly help the balance of the team more in, in very subtle ways. But Grobelar definitely did. Grobelar was incredible with how he helped the balance team. He got our team on the attack all the time. He, you know, he'd catch every ball as well. Which he, I mean, today, you couldn't imagine people catching the ball the way Bruce Grobelar did. Catching a distributor. Yeah. yeah. A distributor. I think that was where, I mean, where, where Grobelar was sometimes damned with faint praise about the, whenever he catch one, the other commentators say, oh, one for the ca- another one for the cameras from Grobelar there. But the fact was, he was retaining possession. Yeah. Wasn't conceding a corner. Yeah, exactly. And he was getting us back on the front foot straight away. And some of the, some of the, the, the saves that he made where he caught the ball and people said, you know, that it was it was for show. It was just ridiculous. It was just supreme handling. And to be able to catch a ball yeah. that's going in uh, and, and there's no margin for error. And if you make the slightest mistake, it's a goal. That's brave goalkeeping. And I, I think he never really got the credit for that. Move, well, let's do 85, 86 and we'll do 86, 87 because, well, as I said before, we're having a nice time. 85, 86, uh, go you first on this Can't one, Can't over that one quickly. <laughs> <laughs> on 85, 86, there is that, there's, firstly, there's the Everton win at Anfield. Um, there is sort of that feeling, that Everton win at Anfield in February. There is that feeling that, you know, Dalglish's side, and I'm going to you first because you've written a book on it, Dalglish's side is, is seen to be a side in transition. Kenny himself is is learning the ropes. That's the idea. Everton come to Anfield, they win two 0 and that did sort of feel then like it was all over by the shout. And that you know back then, especially you know the sort of run that Liverpool then put in is beyond sort of now. You know we're, we're turning this in the context of where Chelsea have won nine on the bounce, and that, that thing that sort of thing feels like it happens a little bit more. But Liverpool then, and I think in the last, I think I'm right in saying I think it's about the last fourteen. Liverpool win twelve and draw two, and it's it's. It's hit. Liverpool were forced to have to go to those that that extreme to come ahead of that Everton side. Almost it, when you mentioned before, and I'm, I'm glad that Rob mentioned the way in which he did that that side that used to come second to the good Liverpool side, the great Liverpool sides, the late seventies and early eighties. They felt like they were they they, they were just uh, they were supporting cast in a film. Whereas Liverpool and Everton eighty five eighty six, it's because the co stars. It's that you're gonna have to be this good plus the, this weird West Ham thing, which we'll gloss over. But yeah. you're gonna have to be this good <laughs> to be able to to be able to live with them. Yeah, I mean definitely to live with each other. Yeah, and, and through the first phase of the season, Liverpool, had to, Liverpool, and Everton had to keep pace with Man U with their ridiculous ten-game winning, yeah, winning yeah. start to the season. And I think at Just one point, the title now. Well, at, at one point, I think Everton trailed United by seventeen points in and around sort of November before United started dropping points. So from our point of view, we've we've, we've obviously got one eye on Everton. When we're feeling quite good about the fact that Everton were going through a difficult start to eighty-five, eighty-six. But then Everton in the middle third of the, of the season suddenly get back into that same relentless winning form um, that they, they chose in 84-85. And that was, again, you begin thinking, Christ, we, you know, we're gonna, we've got ahead of United, but now here come Everton. And the, the win at Anfield was, was that cemented Everton's title for me. I, and I couldn't, Liverpool had been pretty inconsistent really all the way through that season, right up to that point. And the requirement to come back from, some, I think it was 11 points at one stage, to, with that kind of run, you wouldn't, you, you didn't see that coming. And in the derby itself, Liverpool were in absolute shambles in that game. Grobelar has had an injury in midweek, that's a daft goal in, which is an awful goal to concede. But I think there were some mitigating injury circumstances with that. But tactically, Dalglish got it completely wrong as well. And he, he was learning as a, as a manager with it being his first season. Naturally, he played Molby up front. I think we had we had an injury. Um, I think Rush. Rush was either half fit or didn't play. I think Russ played, but he, he certainly wasn't his best. And Mulby partnered him, partnered him <laughs> up front, which was a bizarre decision, yeah. given that he played half the season at uh, a sweeper. Um, I'm just getting into Kenny's mind here. I think, and I think, I think, I think, I think, I think, basically, I think Dalglish is probably feeling the pressure a little bit of his first season, and yeah. you know, we, we've fallen behind Everton. It's a must-win game, really, for Liverpool going into it because I think there's, I think there were five points in it going into the game, and you know, if, if you had that game fixture now, February, think it's a must-win this because we can't afford to lose. We certainly can't afford to lose it, losing it. I thought, you know, it was done and dusted. If anything, Liverpool benefited, benefited I think, from the pressure being off after that point because it, it, I think at the bookies odds, Liverpool must have been about 5-1, five, five to 1, 6 to 1 to win the league at the that press, point. The press were given the title to Everton. Yeah. And I remember, I've quoted this in other contexts before, but I remember Kenny's press conference in the week after the game and they'd, uh, what did he say? He said, um, do you think it's Everton's title to lose now? Words to that, that effect. Is it, they, they were goading him really, it's Everton's title and he went... He goes, well, if any of my players think that, I don't want to see them tomorrow morning in training. 
And it was, you know, at the time, you were, there wasn't a lot of soundbite action. It felt like a real statement from Kenny. And nobody particularly sat up and said, no, but I remembered it. Yeah. And, and, and I think what he, what he did well as a manager there is he, he just got it right back to basics and just thought, yeah. you know, whether we can game. win this league yeah, is, is beyond our control now. But it's very much in Everton's, uh, it's Everton's destiny to win this league. What we'll do is just go out and, and, and win the next game. Take each game as it comes. He obviously thought there's about 33 points still to play for here. And you, all we can do is just put them on the board, basically, and see what happens. And I think that he, he did that really, really well. I think, I think the first, sorry, Neil, I think, I think the first one he puts on the board is the Tottenham away, which is a last-minute winner by Mulby from 25 yards. Yeah, drilled yeah. into the corner. Um, yeah. On that whole season, Dave, and this is the other, you know, the mentioned before, Gray's gone because Lineker's come in, and this is again this this feeling that both sides are sort of urging each other on. Lineker comes in and scores. Genuinely, I mean, I'm not exaggerating this one. I feel like bad now because I did the Manfield joke before. Yeah. I think Lineker scores. Does he score 42 in so all? Comp- 40 goals, 32 league goals in his only season. In his only season yeah. at Everton, in the 85-86 season, and he just doesn't stop scoring up to and including yeah. the cup final. You know, even then, and we recently watched the second half of that cup final back as part of a, part of another show. And I, I mean, there was two things to take from it. One of the things to take from it is these two sides when they play that 85-86 final, we watch the second half and they're knackered. Yeah. The extent to which, when you actually watch the second half of that back, and it's not because football was significantly slower because when you watch other games from about that season back it's not the case these sides and the last the last 20 minutes the legs have fallen off everybody on the pitch they're absolutely knackered because they've gone hell for leather every game of the campaign just you know just knock lumps out of each other to get to the running to then do the running uh, but Again, though, Lineker scores in the final, and then Rush scores, and Liverpool never lose a match where Ian Rush has scored. It's a very important thing. Yeah, it's, it's funny you're talking about tiredness there because I think Everton lost that game from, from an error, you know, one stupid mistake. And I think Howard got very, very emotional then because he, he was a very clinical, very detached manager most of the time. And that final, Everton had a decent first half, led, started the second half very well. If you remember, yeah. Grabalar pushed the ball over from Sharpie's header. You had Grabalar arguing with Jim Beglin. You thought, oh, great, yeah, they're on the ropes now. And then Gary Stevens gives this very, very loose pass out of defence and he gave it to Jan Mulby, of all people. So, you know, so Jan Mulby just opened up Everton. You know, Rush was clinical as ever. That was it, you know, the equaliser. You think, oh my God, what's happening here? And Howard, rather than being detached and being cold and being calm, substituted Gary Stevens. Like a fit, a fit of peak almost took him off and just ruined Everton's shape completely. And that knackered squad just literally fell apart in the last 15 or 20 minutes. And I think having lost, you know, the league in the circumstances, it became such an important game. Then, you know, so the FA Cup, oh my God, can't lose this, can't lose this. And it did, it just, you know, fell to bits in fairly, you know, so horrible fashion. Um, the, the, especially the style of play that season. Howard always said that he sold Gary Lineker after that one season, which is madness. You know, I've managed to score 40 league goals and you sell him. Because uh, he claimed uh, the team had become too one-dimensional, they relied too much on Gary Lineker's pace, and they were playing the ball, you know, forward and long, you know, so too much, too frequently, which is nonsense, you know, because the team was still successful. Like I say, they only didn't win the double because of this phenomenal, you know, run by Liverpool. But he sold Gary Lineker. He claimed he went back to the, you know, the, the system, the formation he'd had previously. Adrian Heath was fit again then, and then won the league in 1987, therefore justifying his philosophy. But I, I still disagree with all that. I still think that, you know, to keep hold of Gary Lineker, who was then the best striker of his generation, Everson would have benefited for years and years and years to come. And I still think there was something going on there. You know, Howard thought he was getting the job at Barcelona. And, mm. you know, he had Lineker lined up. And he's denied it many times since. Lineker says he doesn't know anything about it other than this. Uh, he was told by Everton, Barcelona have come in for you. You know, you can talk to them if you want. We're not going to stand in your way. Strange things, but at, at the end of How it... How much did he go for? 2.8 million. Yeah. You see, about Everton being direct, the Evo- Everton were much more fluid with Lineker. Yeah. They were, they, they were... Well, Howard disagreed. He thought they were more direct with Lineker, which from, is As a local perspective, so, everything yeah. was much more on the deck. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine. I thought that Everton team was better than the team that won the league before. In terms of when you were watching them up close. I didn't. I, I, I mean, it's like hard to fathom. I remember yeah. the, the day we win the title that year at Chelsea, 1-0, and you hear, we were absolutely cock-hooped with this little nagging <laughs> thing, Everton, Nothing they could do. Four 0 up after about twenty five minutes. I think, seven, I think seven. Is it six one? Yeah. yeah. I thought it was seven in my head, but it was yeah. a scoreline that just slightly jolted, slightly dented the yeah. celebration. Slightly you went fucking hell, <laughs> and we're gonna have these next week. So they're not. You know, you knew. You well, knew. Everson then had West Ham on there the Monday night, and that would have been a title decider because like West Ham were like they finished third that year. Mm. As it was, Liverpool won. It was all over. Everson beat West Ham absolutely steamrolled them three one comfortable. What yeah. a way to prepare for a cup final, playing again on the Monday. But it's, that's how it was back then. Yeah, I mean the. the just to, to reference the West Ham thing, it's one of my favourite things about 85-86 because there's so many stories around the season.
season, which is why it is write a book about it. But it, it's the fact that Liverpool need to win that game at Chelsea, not to deny Everton, but to deny West Ham. Yeah. Because if we hadn't beat Chelsea, West, uh, West Ham would have... They, they had their, last, their last game on Saturday was at West Brom. They win that. And had Liverpool not gone to Chelsea and won, they'd have gone to Goodison needing a win to win the league. Um, which is remarkable given that I'd it like was Man U and then Everton. <laughs> And it was actually the last day, the requirement for three points. I think in terms of Everton, we only needed a draw, really, to, to stave Everton really? off. But the win was required to make sure that West Ham didn't have a chance of winning it at Goodison, which, you know, I'm also almost tempted to say, I wonder what, what it would have been like if we'd got the draw and oh then we'd gosh. have been wasting on that result. I wonder what, Ever I wonder what Everton yeah. would have been like. That. Given that they, yeah. they probably couldn't have won the league, but West Ham could have. But the nature of that Everton team would have been that they'd have wanted to go out and win that oh, game 100%. massively. Um, and, and also there'd have been 40,000 Liverpool supporters in Goodison <laughs> which I mean, Dan there would have been wouldn't it yeah. because I'm sure Evertonians wouldn't have had much appetite for it but yeah we'd have filled, we'd have filled Goodison oh, that is nuts isn't it I don't know forever blowing bubbles and all that you know coming into focus um, scenario on 86-87 yeah. and again it's almost you've got the overhang this Liverpool side that's pulled itself together 85-86 Dave it's a team in transition if you want to be polite if you don't want to be necessarily polite about a side that wins the double yeah. which is crackers it's a side that in 86-87 you begin to see where where it's tired you know you've only got to look at sort of its goal return that season yeah. look at the fact that it's not sharp what's really strange is that that Everton side 86-87 they have a lot of injuries that season. Now that's that when I was when I was reading yeah. back up on this today and sort of working out what we're going to talk about. They have a lot of injuries, and yet the again the, it, it's all over by the shout and come April. They've the, 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 they just bestride the league. It's almost like they're so angry that they hadn't won the season before they were just going to sort this out. People talk about that as being Howard's greatest achievement, actually winning the league with that squad of players because the injuries were ridiculous. Gary Stevens, Pat Van Den Howe, Peter Reid. Uh, if you think of like the first dozen games, Kevin Langley was playing in central midfield, Peter Billings was playing at the back, Ian Marshall was playing up front. It was it was a real you know mix and match team. Paul Power was signed as a, a utility player in the summer and played 40 matches. He only like missed the game through injury predictably when the title was won. And so it was proper management, if you like, you know, getting your resources, you know, putting your square pegs into round holes and you know conjuring up a winning football team out of all that. And I think Emerson benefited because Liverpool had, you know, for their standards, a poor season that season. And it was one of those seasons where there weren't any of those other big guns absolutely, you know, sort of champing down the door, you know, looking for that opportunity to step in when, you know, so Everton and Liverpool were faltering, if you like. Everton kept going, kept going. And then when the reinforcements started coming back, you know, towards the end, I think Peter Reid uh, returned around about February. And it just, you know, made a significant difference then. And it was, it, it wasn't as riotously celebrated as it was in 85 because 85 was the first title in, in my lifetime first you know proper you know so FA Cup and you know a couple of months previously but it was it was so unexpected it was so unusual but because Everton had won the European Cup winners cup being in cup finals it was almost you can never you know like become offhand and blase about it but you know to win the league again it wasn't like a, such an achievement and it wasn't done as an imperious a fashion as it had been done in 1985 so yeah it was still you know celebrated tremendously it was something else but you become to expect it then you know you, you started to feel like how you would imagine a Liverpool fan of the felt all those years where you sort of expected trophies to be won and you thought oh, this is going to happen all the time and obviously it hasn't happened since. Am I right in thinking, my hazy memory of that season is that teams were falling over themselves a bit to blow that title. We, we, just... we lost three on the bounce yeah. in, in March. Didn't we, didn't, but I remember, didn't we go quite a few points clear in February, in, yeah. although, albeit the arrivals are games and I remember us, almost the, the inverse of the season before, the media awarding us the title in late February. I think we went and won at Arsenal. Yeah, no, in, in, in mid-March we, we, we were about nine points clear. Exactly, this is what I'm remembering. I remember the, the media going, that's it, Liverpool. Although I think there might have been games in hand on our hours which they weren't counting and um, they were giving us the title. And I remember we just seemed to yeah, totally no, combust. We, we lost three on the bounce and it was in and around the, the, uh, the League Cup final. Cause yeah, the turning point time. was Everton winning at Arsenal away and Wimbledon winning at Anfield. That's right, yeah. that was one of the yeah. was one of our three defeats and then we lost at Norwich as well somewhere. Yeah. Um, there was the League Cup final defeat at Wembley which was the first time that Rush... Right. It scored, but didn't we? Didn't uh, we, and when we lost, basically, and that the same thing happened the next week in the league. He scores again in the league, and we lose again. Yeah. And I think mentally that was that was quite a big thing. And I think generally speaking, just looking back on eighty six, eighty seven, it was a flat. It was a flat season yeah, by comparison was. with eighty four, eighty five, eighty five, eighty six. 
they they felt like titanic struggles yeah. um, both of those seasons right across the board in the FA Cup and in the league and in Europe as well obviously before the ban um, and then 85, 86 I, I, I think that that title charge for both sides in 86 took so much out of them Neil talked about the tiredness there I think that goes into the next season maybe the injuries that yeah. Everton suffered might have been partly down to well, that. You talk about didn't, players didn't train as yeah. as you know sort of as as as, as professionally, should we say, True. in those days. They didn't look after themselves, and I think you know playing sixty games takes its toll on the body. And I just wonder whether you know there might have been a bit of the. Hundred percent. Well, if you remember how Everton won the league, I mean they did stumble across the line. They could have won it at Anfield if you remember in the derby match, mm. and uh, no way on God's earth was Liverpool got it. We won three one, yeah. So Sheedy scored that wonderful free kick and gave the V's to the cop. Yeah, uh, Liverpool came back and won. 3-1 so Everton that's great that's great afternoon it was a flat uh, season that, uh, that to me that was the standout yeah. uh, memory because it rough actually eclipsed uh, Dean's Derby uh, Derby goal scoring record as well but, and I remember the cops singing who the fuck is Dixie Dean it was one of the, be- <laughs> one of the best chants ever though. I loved I loved that one <laughs> but uh, the opportunity to win it the following week against Manchester City who got relegated that season oh well that's going to be a gimme nil nil mm. oh my god Norwich away on the bank holiday Monday then and finally got the one Van den Howe yeah. got the winner, didn't he? Yeah. Four minutes. So it was, you know, stumbled over the line in the end. But you're right, I mean, 84, 85, it's probably one of my favourite seasons ever. 85, 86 was just, you know, a Titanic season, like you say. Obviously, you don't remember it quite as fondly for what happened in the end. 86, 87, great achievement. But, you know, no, I, I don't remember it possibly as fondly as the other seasons. That summer then, Kendall, and that's just the, the last bit we'll touch on, really. Kendall goes, uh, goes to Bilbao. And then simultaneously, Liverpool. Kenny Dalglish, masterstroke, three bits of business. He's already got Aldridge in, uh, adds Barnes and Beardsley. He's going to go on and add Houghton, um, and he's going to move Ronnie Whelan inside. It's a masterstroke. It's it's this funny thing where you know you mentioned sort of limping across the line, and you even look that season. Sheedy uh, scores more league goals, uh, 86, 87, than anyone else gets 13 yeah. for Everton. Um, it was a side that needed renewal um, in the way in which football teams just do. Yeah. Uh, but then Kendall wasn't there to do it. And that's the great shame. And that's the... Yeah. When, you know, people make the noise about, you know, well, Everton supporters talk about Heisel. The, the issue is that Kendall chooses to go abroad. And he chooses to go abroad because he wants to test himself and play and, and, yeah, yeah. and manage at the European level. When... He may not. He may. He may still have done because there was different money in the game. Venables had gone abroad. Bobby Robson had gone abroad in the period that we're talking about. Uh, you know, and, and Rush and Rush and Sunes and uh, Lineker, they are all moving abroad uh, yeah. for, for financial reasons. But that's the killer, isn't it? That at that moment, Everton find themselves in a situation where they need to have. They need. They need to have someone like Kendall in charge 100%. to see them through this period when Liverpool have got Dalglish at the peak of his powers. Yeah, I mean the the. the Appointment of Colin Harvey was the right one at the time. No Evertonian in the world would have quibbled with that. But Howard had been doing it for you know four or five years by that stage. His record in the transfer market was incredible. Um, Colin Harvey came in and he left it well alone here for a season and did all right. He won the Charity Shield. I think they finished fourth. Got to the Simod Cup final. You know things like that. But you know it was it wasn't quite as it had been previously. But having seen what you know Kenny Dalglish had done with those ridiculous signings as you mentioned tried to do his own thing. Tony Cotty was a record, British record transfer signing at the time. Sort of a bit hit and miss to begin with, but Neil McDonald was a poor signing, Stuart McCall was a poor signing, Pat Nevin didn't really do it. The quality of his signings compared to the quality of the signings that Liverpool brought in were chalk and cheese, and that was reflected in what that Liverpool team then went on to produce and what that Everton team went on to produce, and the team started to go in different directions and you know, haven't really come back together since then. I think with Harvey's appointments, I mean, whilst it, on the face of it, it seems like the eminently sensible thing to do and to promote with, from within, I think possibly there's a bit of Everton thinking there. We, we, we do what Liverpool do here exactly. because it's worth for Liverpool. Yeah. But I think most people that got to, to know what Colin, Har- Colin Harvey was like was that he wasn't really cut out for management. He was probably he was he was a really good coach, yeah. great relationships with players. But sometimes you need and and, and Kendall, you know, for for. All the fact that he, come, he was obviously a very, a very nice man, generally speaking, had an edge to him. Oh, he's ruthless. Um, and I, I, you know, I wonder whether Harvey ever really was cut out to, to be you know, of that same ilk. Probably not, as was ultimately proven. So I think that certainly contributes to, to Everton's re- relatively sharp fall from grace there. But um, but again, it's it's this this was the thing really, wasn't it? Liverpool and Everton competing so uh, intently over the course of three or four seasons that. As you move on through that phase and beyond that phase, it's natural that Everton are going to compare themselves with Liverpool because they were the they, they were the two teams locking horns, 
And as Liverpool make that jump, become more expressive by flair. I mean, maybe Pat Nevin was a sort of response in the transfer market to us signing John Barnes. Yeah. You know, a flair player, a winger. Um, our Pat. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, our Pat. Yeah, we don't speak no more. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, there's, there's a myriad re- there are myriad reasons. But I, I think one of the things that I'd, I'd always like to put on record is the fact that the whole Heisel thing, I mean, undoubtedly it has an effect because there is the, the, there's the law of the, of the Champions League or playing in Europe at, at the time and the financial side, which attracted, as you say, Liverpool players as well away from, from Merseyside. But for me, the whole... If it hadn't been for Heisel thing, that that I never heard that until the mid nineties. Yeah, it, 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 it just that. wasn't a thing. And I think Evertonians sort of they, they pretty much took it on the chin. The European band, and there was certainly I certainly had no no um, sort of fallout with my Evertonian friends at the time. We we began to fall out in the nineties when, as I say, both clubs go through that phase where they're really not competing at the level that they had been previously and for a long time. That was where the bitterness, I think, began to, to that, fester. That, that was the first time you started here. And that was when, yeah, because... Yeah. But it was, it was six, seven, maybe eight years on. Yeah. And it, but ultimately, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a thing there and Everton are here now. And, you know, it was a natural thing to say, well, ultimately we started going shit in, in 87 and that wasn't long after Heisel. And, you know, it's a natural conclusion to draw. But certainly for a long time, people never said it, never talked about it. Okay. Have we done have we done the the, the Liverpool Everton rivalry of the rivalries of the eighties there? Is everyone feel has anyone got anything else that they want to mean, say? Did, did, I mean you, you could we could have gone on for hours because we you know you don't even talk about the fact that we were in another cup final in eighty nine in completely yeah. different circumstances and you know, let's face it, um Evertonians we'll were superb and <laughs> about that. Um, you know, there's 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 a load of there's a load of stuff we haven't touched on, but you know, there's limits. You know, we've all got lives and that, haven't we? So. <laughs> we have indeed, we have indeed all got lives and that. A uh, huge thank you to Dave Prentice for coming and talking to us about all of this. It is important to remember these little bits and pieces of what it was like in the 1980s, and it's great to have Mike and Rob throw some light on it as well. This all stemmed from one one of our history shows that we do on the Anfield Rap, where Mike and Evan happened to tell me once how terrified he was of Everton in 1985, <laughs> and this sort of stuff stays with me vividly. <laughs> that the idea that you can suddenly become terrified by a football team is very very important indeed thanks to Alex for producing Rob, Dave and Mike one more time it's been our rival show on Everton that was an Anfield Rap player show behind the paywall normally but this week is part of the Christmas hamper we just wanted to give it to you let you listen see what we're about hopefully you enjoyed it hugely there'll be more of them to come Sports Social Podcast Network